You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open God's Word to the Scripture reading this afternoon. Numbers chapter 11. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, then do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take up the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. 
He brought together seventy of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them. And he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the seventy elders. And the spirit rested on them. They prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them! Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. And they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and He struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibrot Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibrot Hatava, the people traveled to Hazarot and stayed there. This afternoon we continue with our series of sermons on the Gospel according to Mark. We've come to Mark 3, verses 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all He was doing, many people came to Him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, He told His disciples to have a small boat ready for Him to keep the people from crowding Him. For He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch Him. Whenever the evil spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus, God had already done so much for them. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. At the Red Sea, God had saved the people of Israel from certain death at the hand of Pharaoh. He was bringing them to the promised land. They were on their way. When they were hungry, He fed them with manna from heaven and provided them with water when they were thirsty. But all of that wasn't enough. In Numbers 11, we read that they first complained in general about their hardships. told that fire came down from heaven and people died. Then we read that they began to crave other food. And they started wailing and mourning about how good they had it in Egypt. And they thought 
that with their moaning and groaning, they would be able to manipulate God into giving them what they really wanted. Meat. And oh, Yahweh, Yahweh gave them meat. He gave them quail three feet deep. But it came at the cost of a severe plague. The people of Israel, you see, they wanted a God who would be at their beck and call. A God who would work for them on their terms. In 4,000 years, it seems that nothing has much changed. The history of Christianity in North America is by and large the search for a God who works for people. Perhaps you've heard of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. The Great Awakening was a a time in the eastern United States especially in which many people were converted. Many people were drawn to Christ by the Word and Spirit. Biblical Reformed teachings formed the foundation and basis of the Great Awakening, especially with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. That was the the Great Awakening. But then came the Second Awakening in the 19th century. And the, the Second Awakening was a conscious turn away from Reformed biblical doctrine. It was a turn from truth to technique, from principles to pragmatism, looking for a God who works for us. And one of the the major figures of the Second Awakening was Charles Finney. Charles Finney, famous evangelist, wrote a systematic theology. And the introduction has an interesting sentence in it. I'll just quote that sentence. It says, Many servants of our Lord should be diligently searching for a gospel that works. And I am happy to state that they can find it in this volume. Finney's approach to evangelism was that you only have to find the right program, the right technique, and then people will inevitably be converted. Closer to our day, we have evangelists, televangelists, who tell us that faith is the finger which flips the switch of cosmic divine power. If you follow these steps or these laws, if you use these techniques or methods, this program, then you'll get what you want. More subtly, perhaps a little closer to home yet, we see this way of thinking when people speak about so-called worship styles. There's no right or wrong worship style. There are only worship styles that work for you, that fit your personality, that fit your needs, whatever works for you. In this way of thinking, even prayer can become a technique for manipulating God. Through following these steps or praying this prayer, we can get God to do what we want for us. With all this, the Christian faith becomes another sort of self-help program that will bring you health, wealth, and whatever you define as happiness. Now the problem 
is that this pragmatic way of thinking runs shipwreck on the rocks of real life. After all, Christians still have marriage problems. Believers get depressed, suffer with other afflictions, mental and physical, cancer among them. Sometimes we have miscarriages. And so we could go on and on. Does God really work? Is He at our beck and call? Is that what the Christian faith is about? Well, if it is, then we should quickly abandon it because it doesn't work. At least not in the way that the world thinks about such things. Christian faith works as part of God's program and His plan to bring glory for Himself through the redemption of His people. Now all these issues come to the fore as we look closely at Mark 3, 7-12. to The focus here in this passage is not what Jesus says. In fact, there are no direct words of Jesus quoted here. Rather, it's on what Jesus does, or rather, can do. The age-old pragmatic question, what can Jesus do? What can we get out of Him? The previous passage, say verses 1 to verse 6, concludes with an ominous note there in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There was a conspiracy to commit murder in the air. And the Lord Jesus knew it. So He decided to back off and go to one of His favorite places, Go to the, the Sea of Galilee. Appears that he was trying to get away from the, the center of controversy, away from the scribes and Pharisees. The time for his arrest, the time for his suffering and death was not yet here. But no matter where he went, it was difficult to find solitude. Mark tells us that a large crowd from Galilee followed the Savior. That wouldn't be hard to believe since he was in that general area anyway. But what follows is surprising. We're told that there were also many people from Judea and Jerusalem. Those places, they they were some distance to the south. Uh, Especially if you remember that people would have to walk those distances. They couldn't drive them. Then Mark mentions Idumea. Idumea is even further south than Judea. And then there were also people from across the Jordan, from the area called Perea. And then Phoenicians as well, from Tyre and Sidon. North, south, east, and west, the people are coming from everywhere. And at the beginning of verse 8, we discover the reason why they were coming. When they heard all He was doing, not what He was saying, or preaching, or teaching, but what He was doing. They were interested in what Jesus could do for them. They were particularly interested in what He could do for their bodily health. They wanted Him as the emergency room along the Sea of Galilee. They wanted Dr. Jesus. They had a narrow view of who Jesus was and what He had come to do. Well, could they be blamed for this? 
while with some of the people in the crowd, we'd have to say that their ignorance on this point may have been excusable. After all, we have no evidence that the Lord Jesus preached and taught in Idumea. However, the Galileans could have known better because Jesus did preach and teach among them. He did more. He did a lot more than simply healing in Galilee. In chapter 1, verse 21, we read about how Christ went to the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum is in Galilee. And He taught. Elsewhere, we read about how He went around regularly, making it His habit, going around Galilee, preaching the good news of God, both in the synagogues and elsewhere. And from His preaching, they should have known what He was all about. So for these people at least, those who were native to the region of Galilee, their narrow view of the Lord Jesus was inexcusable. Today we also cannot be excused for having a narrow view of who Christ is. Because we have the entire Bible to testify of Him. Many of us have been brought up in Christian homes. We've heard the preaching of Christ over and over. Yet because of our sinful nature, we still often have a distorted view. Many times we don't even recognize it. And the problem is made worse in in, in that very point. That that we don't have the ability to step back by ourselves from our own views to, to critically evaluate them. Loved ones, this is why we need to continually and carefully listen to the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, listen to the preaching of the Scriptures, and let the Word correct and shape our perception of who He is. And we learn more about who He is as we look at verse 9. We have here is a unique detail to Mark. We, we don't read anything like this in either Matthew or Luke. It says there, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. In the first place, this tells us how big the crowd really was. There's a real danger that the Lord Jesus could physically be crushed by the throng of people. Mark says three times in three verses that this was a huge crowd, and he emphasizes it again a fourth time with this detail. He doesn't want us to miss it. And we're ready to say, okay, Mark, we get the point. It was a big crowd. But this detail in verse 9, but the little boat, also reveals something about Christ. As a man in his state of humiliation, Jesus was concerned about self-preservation. He made wise use of ordinary precautions and he was not going to take any foolish risks. If the crowd got too wild, he could jump in the boat, push off some way from shore, and he would be safe. Well, doesn't this teach us something as well? When we take foolish risks, we do stupid things, Are we living out of our union with Christ? His concern for self-preservation is reflected in what we confess about the Sixth Commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
In Lord's Day 40, we confess out of the Scriptures that we are not to harm or recklessly endanger ourselves. Christ did no such thing. And since we are in Christ, united to Him by faith, our life and our attitude should be the same. With verse 10, we get brought back to the reason why the crowds were so big and why they were so focused on getting close to Jesus. We're told that it was because He healed many and because of that, there were many people with afflictions and diseases who were pushing forward. Literally, it says they were falling on Him just to touch Him. They believed that by simply touching Him, they would be healed. They were interested in what Jesus could do for them, how He could work for them to get rid of their bodily pain, to get rid of their misery. Well, the interesting thing that we need to think about is the fact that Jesus allowed this to happen. He could have chosen not to heal the people. He could have said, listen, I'll heal you later, but first you have to listen to my message. In fact, I'm going to get in this boat and I'm going to go out 10 meters from the shore and I'll preach to you from there and maybe later on I'll come back to shore and heal some of you. But we read no such thing. If the people are motivated by this pragmatic approach to Jesus, what can Jesus do? And if we agree from passages like Numbers 11 that that this sort of approach to God is reprehensible, then why doesn't Jesus put the brakes on it? It seems like He's allowing Himself to be manipulated and exploited by the crowds. Why is that? Well, the answer has two parts. And they are connected. The first part has to do with His humiliation. At this stage in His earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus was on His way to Golgotha to suffer and to die on the cross for us. And manipulation and exploitation are humiliating. Being used by other people was part of his suffering. Moreover, it was also part of the way to the cross in that the greater his popularity with the people became, the greater the animosity of the Jewish leaders also became. There was a a relationship, a direct relationship between those two things. So the first part of the answer has to do with humiliation. The second part of the answer has to do with his compassion. As part of his humiliation, there's the connection, he lived in a world broken by sin and its effects. There was enormous suffering in that time in in which there was no advanced medical care like we know it today. Just take diabetes, for example. I know some of you have diabetes. And today, we know that diabetes is a treatable condition. Even if it can still be life-threatening. And it's still very serious. But in those days, nothing could be done for someone with diabetes. In fact, they didn't even know what diabetes was. Didn't have a name for it. That was the world the Lord Jesus lived in during His earthly ministry. 
crowds of people with all kinds of horrible suffering that we can we can't even imagine coming to Jesus. How could he not respond with love and compassion? How could he not allow them to touch him and so be healed? How could he not allow himself to be manipulated in this way? Love compelled him. Loved ones, see your Savior and his tender heart here. Love compelled him to heal or to allow healing power to go from his body. And it was that same love that also compelled him to go to the cross. And so this pragmatic approach to Jesus existed and was even used by God ultimately for our salvation. But does that justify pragmatic approaches to Christ or to God today for us? We need to consider this carefully. Any notion of manipulating or exploiting God is idolatrous. When we think that we can somehow twist God's arm, that if we just follow this formula, pray this prayer, use this program, then God will do this or do that, then we are thinking of a different God than the one revealed in the Bible. The God revealed in the Bible, the Christ revealed in the Bible, He will not be manipulated. He will not be exploited. He is the sovereign, almighty God, and you cannot control Him. And you must not try to control Him. And when we acknowledge God's sovereignty, a corollary of that, a side thing of that, is that we take His Word seriously. His Word outlines our desperate condition and our need for a Savior who will do something for us. Driven by the Word, we're driven to look for someone who can bear the wrathful, divine punishment our sin deserves. In faith, we look to Christ as the one who can do something for us, who can do something for us about our most serious problem in this life, our problem with a holy and righteous God. But when we do that, We are looking to a Savior who can do something for us on God's terms, not ours. Loved ones, that's the difference the Word of God makes in all of this. The Word of God defines the terms on which Christ can and will do something for us. On that basis, we look to Him as our Savior. Getting back to our text, we come to to verse 11. And there we find that there were not only people afflicted with physical ailments coming to Jesus, we also, again, find the demon-possessed. Actually, verses 11 and 12, they have a a different time frame in, in mind. You see, verses 7 to 10 take place on one particular occasion. However, the last two verses of our text takes place repeatedly on a number of occasions. And this is captured in our translation with the word whenever. Whenever the evil spirits saw him. 
Literally, they were unclean spirits. In other words, they were non-physical powers that work upon and, and many times within a person. They're unclean. That means that they defile the person whom they inhabit. All of this means that what we're reading about here are not disembodied spirits floating around Galilee, but demons who were inhabiting and afflicting people. So when we read that the evil spirits saw him, we should understand that to mean that they saw Jesus through the eyes of the people who were afflicted with these demons. Mark tells us next that they fell down before him. Again, people with physical bodies falling at Jesus' feet. Why did this happen? Why did the demons do this? And we're not directly told, but from what we know about the first century context, this would have been considered very ominous, very scary. Demons falling down before a man's feet. Well, that would seem to indicate something demonic, something evil about the man. Even more ominous would have been the fact that they cried out and called him the Son of God. And this is where there's a connection to what happened in the preceding verses with the crowds. You see, in the first century, a demon calling out somebody's name would have been looked at as very menacing, very bad. The demons were doing this in an attempt to control him and to manipulate him. Does that sound familiar? Crowds did the same thing although it was different. The demons were attempting to manipulate his destiny. By announcing him as the Son of God, they were attempting to discredit him, and they were attempting to have him destroyed. After all, who would listen to a man who gets advertised by Satan and his forces? What kind of sense does that make? Shouldn't such a man be destroyed as quickly as possible? Get rid of him. And with the demons falling at his feet, that would indicate to everybody that he is the prince of demons. The demons worship him. He's their master. You can easily see why the Jewish leaders reached that conclusion a little bit further into chapter 3. The evil spirits try to manipulate him and his destiny. They want to use him so that God's work would be destroyed. So that nothing would come of God's promises to crush the head of the serpent. But the Lord Jesus will not be manipulated by Satan or his minions. Verse 12 tells us that he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Literally, it says that he greatly commanded them or admonished them. Same word there is used when Jesus rebukes the wind and waves in Mark 4, in the next chapter. Just like he is the master of nature's realm, nature has to submit to him. So it is with the demons. He overmasters them. 
And should anyone doubt that the devil and his forces are under God's sovereign hand, we only have to point to the very familiar chapter of the first chapter of the book of Job. Though he is his mortal enemy, Satan had to answer God about what he'd been doing and about his whereabouts. And you remember from Job chapter 1 that Satan could do nothing to Job without God's permission. And so here too, the demonic spirits could do nothing when the Lord Jesus told them to keep silent about his identity. And as to the reason for this command, commentators and Bible interpreters, well, they've listed numerous reasons. One of them is connected to what we were just looking at a moment ago. The Lord allows them to say a little, but then He quickly shuts them up. And what they say is enough to carry the drama of His suffering forward, but not enough to have Him killed at this precise moment yet. I think that's probably the best explanation for it. And so really, when you think about it carefully, it's not surprising that Jesus doesn't want this demonic publicity. From this we learn again that God is sovereign over everything, including the forces of evil. God can even take the malevolent intentions of Satan and He can turn them for the good of His people. And He often does. In Romans 8, 38-39, we read those well-known words where Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that he includes there that cannot separate us, he says, neither angels nor demons. Nothing. He is the sovereign, gracious God. Next, notice the irony in our text. There is irony. The the crowds, among whom are are many covenant people who grew up with the Bible, at least the Old Testament, they they see Jesus as their doctor and healer. That's about it. The evil spirits see Jesus as the Son of God even though their announcement of Him as such is driven by evil motivations. The demons get His identity right. Totally right. Makes you think of James 2.19. You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. With our text in mind, we could, we could paraphrase that slightly and we could say, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, you can get Jesus' identity correct and still be lost. You can get Jesus' identity right and still be seeking to use Him and manipulate Him on your own terms. On your own terms rather than God's terms. And again, what what does this teach us? But that we should be a people besotted, infatuated, obsessed with the Word of God. The Bible is where God's terms for a relationship are found. 
The Bible defines and shapes everything about our relationship with Christ. And therefore, the Word has to be central in our lives. And I think it's fair to say that there's no time of year that we need to hear that more than right now. It's summer. You can see it in the the pews. Many of us are, are on vacation. In fact, I look out into the congregation here and I see many visitors enjoying a summer holiday. I think for many of us, the Bible gets neglected more at this time of year than than at any other time. And I'm not going to wrap your knuckles for that this afternoon, partly because I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Let's just think about that. The Word is like a lifeline. Why? Because it reveals Christ to us. And we need Christ every day, even when we're on vacation. Loved ones, the the gospel is that we have a God who has done something for us in Jesus Christ. We cannot manipulate Him. We cannot exploit Him. But we can turn to Him in faith and rest in Him And He will save us from our sins. He will save us from the power of sin. He will save us from the guilt of sin. Save us from the slavery of sin and its curse. He is a God who acts and works for His people, but on His own terms. And though the people under His leadership often fail to recognize it, And perhaps sometimes he did too. In at least one passage, Moses shows that he knew it. In Exodus 15, we hear his beautiful song, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and earth swallowed them. Speaking about the Egyptians. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. Let's pray. Mighty, sovereign God of heaven and earth, You are our Almighty Lord. There is none like You. No one can manipulate You or exploit You. We praise You for being who You are. We also praise You for Your love and compassion in Jesus Christ. Thank you for everything you do for us in Him. For saving us from the curse of sin, from the power of sin. We also thank you for revealing Him to us again with this passage from Mark. Help us always to look to Him in true faith as our Savior and Lord. Trusting Him on the the terms laid out in Your Word and not on our own. Father, hear our plea as we cry out to You for more grace so that we would live out of our union with Him, that we would, as a consequence, also never recklessly endanger ourselves in any way. And with Your Holy Spirit, please drive us continually to Your Word to see Christ more fully revealed. We pray that You would incline our hearts to Your Word. 
We pray that you would open our eyes to the truths of your word. We pray that you would unite our hearts in passionate love for your word. We pray that you would satisfy us with yourself. Also, please deliver us, we pray, from from all demonic forces that seek to destroy your work in the world. Deliver us from the evil one. We pray all of this in Christ, our compassionate and wonderful Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.